Thank you for listening to Embassy City Church's audio podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message and His Word today. For more information on our church, please visit us at embassycity.com. So we're in a series right now called Where Do We Go From Here? And it kicked off with Start From the Starting Point, Miss Juliet, awesome job. And then Tim followed up with Before the Cross, and I'll believe it when I see it. If you haven't heard any of these, or if you've only heard one and you want to hear the rest, please do. They are on our podcast. It's definitely worth hearing. And so today, I'm going to be focusing on the book of Ephesians, which really focuses on two audiences. One is believers, us individually, but also the body of Christ, the church. And so there's four ways that I really see where do we go from here can be relevant to us. And it's really just by focusing on a different word each way you say it. And so the first one would be, where do we go from here? Where is it that we're going? The second one is, where do we go from here? And that can be a personal question. That could be for you and your family. That could also be for the body. The next one is, where do we go from here? How do we go? What are the paths? What are the ways that we're going to go? And then the fourth one is, where do we go from here? And so a lot of what I'm going to talk about are really going to focus on the we and the here. We as individuals, we as a corporate body. But then also, if you choose Embassy City Church as a place that you want to be a resident, I'm going to talk a little bit about that and what you can expect from the church. Tim is our senior pastor, and God gives him the vision, along with our elders who help govern that vision. And then it's up to to me and the rest of the staff to help implement that vision and to equip volunteers to then go and, and, and implement it as well. And so from a structure standpoint, today we're really going to be talking more about how we implement it versus the vision itself. So when I started thinking about this, I started thinking about the process we all take really in childhood, and I think this is relevant globally. Um, Every child from the time they're born to about school age really trust and follow the parents or the authority figures in their life um, all the time. They don't always listen, but they definitely trust trust that voice and, and that authority. Elementary school age is more of a, you know, starting to, to get influenced by other people, other ways of life, other way people are doing things, other beliefs. So it goes from all the time to maybe most of the time. Then we get into middle and high school, and now we, we really start to, to know life, right? And especially if you have teenagers, I'm sure you know or remember being a teenager, nobody could tell you anything. And so you kind of listen and follow some of the time. And then by the time you get into college and go into young adult, it's just very little of the time even though we, we know intuitively that our parents and our authority figures in our life have our best interests in heart, we still want to kind of go on our own and, and figure this thing out. And so life starts out strong a lot of times, but then over time, you know, the trust and faith in those we love kind of fades a little bit until at some point, if you live long enough, it comes full circle and you realize, oh, what they were saying was actually true. <laughs> so like real life, I've noticed that this actually is a, is a path that we take in our spiritual walks with God. There's plenty of examples in the Bible. You know, Peter, you know, followed Christ for, for three and a half years and still denied him three times at the end. Samson fell to the advances, advances of Deliah, started out really strong, ended up going blind and uh, dying as he was killing his enemies. Um, Aaron was the mouthpiece of God for Moses. And yet, even through all of going through the Red Sea and going into the wilderness, he still found himself falling to the temptation of bowing down to the people's needs and forming a, a golden calf that they ended up worshiping as an idol 
And then you have Judas was part of the original 12 and had all that time with the Lord, yet still his life ends in tragedy at the end. And there's many other examples. And so why do so many of us start out so strong but end up fading away? Well, I started thinking about that and started saying, well, let me do some research. And I kind of looked up uh, through Barna Research some reasons why, why people kind of fade away. But in particular, what I found was 60% of young Christians either permanently or for extended period of time go away from the church after the age of 15. And that really struck me like, wow, these, these are kids that are raised in the church, exposed, saved early, yet they still take that, that time off um, away from God. And hopefully at some point they come back. But here were the six reasons that they found. Reason one, the church just seems overprotective, too overprotective. They said Christians demonize everything outside of the church. The church ignores the problems of the real world. My church is too concerned with movies, music, video games, overprotective. Reason two, Christianity is shallow. One third say something is lacking in my church experience. It's boring. The Bible is not taught clearly or often enough in my church. One of five young adults attending church as a teenager say God seems missing from my experience at church. Reason number three. Churches come across as antagonistic to science. 25% of these young people surveyed said Christianity is actually anti-science. When God actually created everything, and he's, he is a scientist, right? Um, but that's crazy. Also, they're turned off by the creation versus evolution debate. They're just done with it. They don't have the patience for it. Reason number four. Young Christians' church experience related to sexuality are often simplistic and judgmental. Pop culture values hypersexuality over wholeness, and our young people are influenced by that. Nearly 20% have made mistakes and feel judged in church, uh, made mistakes in the area of sexuality and feel judged, so they don't feel like they have a safe place to come and actually talk about it. 40% of 18 to 29-year-old Christians believe the church's teaching on sexuality is completely out of date, which really speaks to the, to the reality that research supports that, that young Christians are sexually as active as non-Christians. And so, we, we, you know, it's just crazy to think that. But reason number five, they wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity. This culture really esteems open-mindedness, tolerance, tolerance, and acceptance, the, the pop culture, popular culture. And today's young adults are probably the most eclectic generation in our history when it comes to race, ethnicity, sexuality, um, technology, and even sources of authority. And so nearly three out of 10, 30% of young people say that churches are afraid of beliefs or other faiths and that the young people are actually forced to choose between their faith and their friends, which is completely antithetical to who God is and what he wants in our life. And then the last reason, the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. Young adults with Christian experiences say the church is not a place that allows them to express doubts. They don't feel safe admitting that Christianity doesn't make sense. 36% don't believe that they can ask any of life's most pressing questions at church. 23% have significant intellectual doubts about their faith, but don't feel the church is a safe place to come and ask and talk about. And lastly, about one out of every six adults with a Christian background said their faith doesn't help with depression or other emotional problems. It's a sad state of the church. So when I look at that, I can only really come to one conclusion, that the church has done an incredible job 
of presenting all the things that believers shouldn't do, but a terrible job at pointing believers to a personal relationship with Christ. Because if, if, if the church did a better job of promoting and pointing people to a personal relationship, I guarantee that these numbers would be a lot different. So it's not only about raising our children, it's also how we disciple new believers. This isn't exclusive to just you know, 20 and younger. This is, this is new believers that come in um, are also bombarded with the thou shall nots. I got saved in my mid-20s. And so I still remember... Um, giving my life to the Lord, and, and while there were some people who, who loved on me, there was, there, was, there was a much bigger group of people that started telling me what I shouldn't do, how I shouldn't live, and, you know, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, and you certainly shouldn't be living the same way you've been living for the last 10 years. <laughs> I mean, I've been living that way for 10 years. I give my life to the Lord, and now I'm being told I shouldn't. I don't even know how. And so it took me two years, nearly two years, to unwrap and unravel some of those habits and some of those old ways to where finally after about two years, after quitting multiple times, but the Holy Spirit had something in my heart and I kept coming to church. I'd come to church hungover and I didn't even know why I was going. But I kept going and finally it got to the point where the light bulb went on and I started at least understanding that it wasn't about a checklist of rituals, it was about a relationship and that's where the journey really began. So part of the problem is how we define the church. And the definition of the church really kind of makes it hard because the definition in Webster's just says a building used for public Christian worship, a place of worship, the house of God, and it actually comes from a Greek word meaning the Lord's house. So it's easy to think if you ask someone what's church to you, they're going to think of a building, they're going to think of a place. Well, the church isn't a building, the church is us. The church is the people. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, that's where we're starting, it says, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church, and the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. So how do we turn the tide of teens and young adults as well as new believers from fading away or taking a, a break from God, if you will? Well, I submit that we need to stop promoting a religious playbook and start beginning to model a personal relationship. That's the only way. Let's put the playbook away. Playbooks work in football, baseball, and basketball. They don't work in our lives. Um, and until we focus on relationship first, we're going to continue to see this revolving door of new believers and young believers coming in and out. And so God's message is clear. Come near to me in relationship, and I'll take you places you never imagined, places in your relationships, your career, your ministry, um, and it's only possible in relationship. And so the subject for today's message is come near to go far. Let's pray. Lord, draw us near to you, so that we can go farther than we can ever imagine in every area of our lives. Amen. So when we look at the book of Ephesians, it's, it's one of the four what, what they call prison letters. Paul wrote this from prison. And if you haven't read Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or Philemon, please do. It's amazing to me how much joy and how much faith Paul exhibits in those letters, and he wrote them from a jail cell. He didn't write them from a mansion or from the Four Seasons or somewhere like that. He wrote them from a jail cell. And one of the things that he focuses on uh, in, this, in, in this letter is the individual people but as well as the, the corporate body. And so this was what they called a circular letter. So it was meant to go out to the congregation, but then it was also meant to be shared with all what they called home churches, which today are small groups, right? And so it's really in those small group homes 
uh, or fellowship homes that that relationship was built. And so this was a letter that was meant to be circulated. And And he really outlines a masterful description of the church in this letter. The first two chapters really focus on the believer and the nature of believers. And so what is the nature of a believer? We're showered with God's kindness. We're chosen for greatness. We're marked with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Spirit's power. Uh, We're freed from sin's curse and bondage, and we're brought near to God. Well, then the last two chapters get into the corporate body and the family and the home. Uh, That believers as a body should have unity in our commitment to Christ and to the use of our spiritual gifts. Have and live up to the highest moral standards. Reject the worldly practices. And for the family, have mutual submission and love amongst each other. And because as individuals and as the body, we're in a constant battle with, with the forces of darkness, Paul really urges everyone to use the spiritual weapons at our disposal. And so if all you ever had to read was Ephesians, you would have a really good idea of what a church should look like and how it should operate. And so Paul explains all of these wonderful things um, are received through Christ, and he refers to the church as a body to illustrate that we have purpose. A bot, you know, the arm doesn't just go off and do its own thing, right? Anywhere I go, the arm's going. Anywhere, you know, so as, as my body goes, everything has to go with it. And so when we're talking about Embassy City Church, when we're talking about the body of Christ, it really, I think we've just made it too complicated. We think that 52 ministries means that we have a great church. And you're not going to see that at Embassy City Church. We'll have a few ministries, but those ministries will be designed to equip and to empower us so that we can go out and do real ministry in our homes and in our jobs and in our communities. And so there's four promises that Paul outlines in Ephesians. And the first one is you're safe with me. You are safe with me. And this is right in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. It gave him great pleasure to adopt, him, to, to adopt us into his family. A loving family, a loving mom and dad would never adopt a child and then abuse them or leave them out you know, to live life on their own. Why would they adopt them in the first place? Right? A loving, healthy family wants to provide a healthy environment for a child to grow so that they can eventually be who they're called to be. And so, depending on our upbringing, we define safety in a variety of ways. We see money is offering safety. Um, we see having a lot of friends as being safety. And uh, we even will go to the depths of controlling our entire environment so that we can feel safe in our lives. And so money is probably the most common thing, especially in the Western world. Um, We've all heard that money is the root of all evil. Well, we know in 1 Timothy uh, 6 and 10, he says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And so when we read in the Gospels, there's four mentions of mammon in the the Gospels. And one of them is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. It says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one, love the other, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, sometimes there's a problem with translations between English and Greek and English and Hebrew. Well, when you look at the, at the root word of money in, this, in, this, in this, uh, this passage, it really means mammon. And mammon isn't money. Mammon is actually a spirit that sits on top of money. It also can sit on property. It can also sit on things and people. Because all mammon is, is mammon promises peace, protection, and provision. 
That's what mammon promises. So when we think of money, and if we immediately think, oh, if I have more money, if I only have uh, better friends, if I only have a better job, that's usually behind that, the root of that is a spirit of mammon, because what he's trying to get you to do is think that those things are going to offer the peace, the provisions, and the protection. But only God can provide those things. And so isn't it just like the devil to twist it just a little bit, to take our eyes off of God as being our peace and our provision and say, oh no, it's the things in the world. And so Mammon says, if you can control your relationships, your career, your kids, your spouse, your money, then you can keep yourself safe. And many of us have lived our entire lives that way. But God says, he is our safety. And there's other ways that we try to feel safe too. We do it with controlling behavior. If we can control others, then we won't get hurt. We test our relationships. As long as they don't do this to me, then they're good. But the minute that they do, oop, I'm out. We hoard things. We hoard money. We hoard friends. And if you have a problem with hoarding and not letting go of things, it's really just a sign that you just don't trust that God can provide, that you think that you need to hold on to everything. Perfectionism. Is everything perfect? Is everything this? If it is, then I'm good. But what happens when the perfection gets shaken a little? God says, you're never going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. Selfish ambition, climbing the corporate ladder. I'm gonna, it's all about me. I'm going to make it. I'm going to show whoever it was that hurt me that I can be a success. And I don't need you, God. I got it. I'm good. I'm talented. I'm gifted selfish ambition. So these are, there's a lot more too. And in James 4, 8, this, is, this really sums it up to me in, in, in Are We Safe is come close to God and God will come close to you. Draw near to me, I will draw near to you. In his presence, there is safety, right? And one of my favorite, favorite passages in the entire Bible is Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel, the church, will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you individually, every single one of us. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. When we draw near to God, he gladly becomes our peace, our protection, our provider. We are safe with him. That's promise number one. Promise number two. You're loved no matter what. And in my experience, this is the hardest promise for us to receive. Ephesians 3, verse 18 says, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Another translation would say, If you experience the love of Christ though it's too hard to understand, but if you experience his love, his unconditional love, then you will be made complete, whole, healed. So every child in the planet longs to know that he or she is loved. When I look back over my life, I can see all of, well, 99.9%. There might have been one-tenth one of 1% that wasn't. But almost every decision I made, especially before I was saved, was about people-pleasing and being accepted so that I could feel loved by people. Almost every decision. So if, you know, if, it was, you know, if, if we look at the fruit, the money, the, the drugs, the behaviors, all that, it was all rooted in, I just wanna be loved. And so the problem with the English language is, is, that, is that love is just one word, but we know intuitively it has a lot of different meanings. 
right? And so the Bible tries to help make it a little clearer for us. So there's three faces of love that are mentioned in the Bible. One is called eros, which is a physical love. It burns fast and intense, but eventually it will burn out. It's rooted in passion, sex, romance. The wedding is great. The first few months, the first couple of years is just wonderful, but then life becomes challenging. The kids come along, we lose a job, money gets funny, and there's only so much eros to keep the flame burning. The second type is phileo. It's a personal relationship. It's hugs. It's affection. I love that guy. I love her. She dresses so great and she's so sweet. I love that movie. I love that church. There's an affection for it, but the problem with both of these loves, eros and phileo, is they're both steeped with conditions. I'll keep the flame burning if you do this. You can be my friend if you don't do this. And so we can go through all the relationships in our lives and see there's conditions when it comes to those two loves. But the third love, agape love, is the powerful love, sacrificial, unconditional, I would lay my life down for you type of love, which God exhibited through Jesus Christ for us. So while every child longs to be loved, we can't experience that unconditional love that God offers us if we first can't receive it from him. I can't give you unconditional love in a healthy manner if I first haven't understood how to receive it from him. And so when I, when I started looking at, 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 at how, Lord, how, I mean, I get saved and I know all the thou shall nots and I know that I could have a personal relationship with you, but I, I never have had a healthy relationship in my entire life, so how do I even know how to do it with you? How do I even start the process? And so he immediately reminded me of Adam and Eve. And the serpent, the trick was, you surely won't die physically. And they bought into that lie. Well, what he didn't tell them was that, yeah, you're not going to die physically, but you're going to die spiritually. Now think about this. Adam and Eve never knew separation from God. They never knew anything but agape love. They didn't have conditions on the eros and the phileo in the garden. It was all agape until they took that bite of the fruit. And from that moment on, their spirit died. They lost that connection, and now they were panicked. They were in a panic. And so when their spirits died, they needed to be reconnected, and that's where Jesus eventually came in to reconnect so that our spirits can live again. And so there's a difference between knowing in our mind and believing in our heart, and that's what God's trying to get us to, 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 to get from the playbook to the relationship is in our mind we know, but it has to get into our hearts so that we can walk it out. And so in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, Ephesians chapter 2, um, this is where, where, where Paul really lays out to the church that you were dead in your spirit and now you're alive. And so he says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, now this isn't just our sins, but this also goes back to Adam and Eve's sin. Because of sin, you were separated. You were dead in spirit. He gave life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by the grace of God that you've been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ to be seated with him in heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. Now remember, this is a position, right? As soon as we give our life to the Lord, we are seated in heavenly places. Well, if you're like me, I've gone through life plenty of times as a saved person wondering, well, I don't feel like I'm sitting in heavenly places. Well, because it's not about my spirit, it's about my emotions, it's about my heart, it's about my will, it's about my behavior. And so when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we're positionally healed, but we still struggle with feeling unloved. Why? 
Well, think about it. When we're born into the world, every single person from the time Adam and Eve sinned, every single human being born into the world is born with a dead spirit. We're inherently separated from God right there. And so the child in time eventually starts to realize something's missing. How many people have you run into in life, like, especially unsaved people, like, something's just missing. I don't know what it is. And they have everything. They have the money. They have the jobs. They have the, the spouses. They have the kids. Everything seems perfect, but something's missing. Well, if they're not saved, it's because their spirit is still dead. And so from the time we're born to the time we get to the age or to the place when we finally receive Christ, the child perceives that God has rejected us, and he hasn't rejected them. But their spirit hasn't come to life to realize that he, he doesn't desire that anybody should perish, but that everybody should have everlasting life. So now you compound it with the fact that I'm not saved, I feel rejected, I'm, something's missing, but then I actually now have real rejection, real abuse, real abandonment by people. And then we go ahead and we get saved, our spirit comes to life, and yet we're still struggling with, oh my gosh, how do I, how do I learn how to love God? And that's a very tough place to be. And so most Christians for a period of time, will live life saved spiritually. Your position, your eternal salvation is secured, but remain bound in your souls and your heart for years, sometimes decades, and wonder what the heck is going on. So until we receive the revelation that we're loved no matter what by God, no matter what our past looks like, no matter what mistakes we've made, no matter who's hurt us, no matter who we've hurt, we'll continue walking through life in pain. And when we're walking through life in pain, even as a saved person, we're still, we're human, we're still gonna seek out numbing agents. Whether it's food, whether it's career, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whatever it is, we're trying to numb the pain. And so how do we get through that and actually get that understanding from our mind to our heart? Well, the first thing is, is we have to admit that we're in pain and we have to take it to God. And we have to have a church, a congregation that we're willing to come and be honest with and say, I'm struggling. If we don't have that, then the revolving door happens, we start church hopping, we start criticizing, when it's not the chef's fault that you're not being nourished, it's that you're not eating the right nourishment, right? And, 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 and applying it the way that you're supposed to. And so when I look at Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3, verse 7, it says, at the moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame of their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when you look at the fig, it's a fruit. But then the leaves, the Hebrew word actually means to bring up, to carry, to exalt. They immediately went into cover-up mode. I've never felt this before. I have a separation from God. I have shame. I messed up. And so they covered themselves up. So what do we cover up? Jobs, cars, houses. We push our kids to excel. And if they don't, then I'm a failure. We start doing all this stuff to make ourselves feel better, but, but really what we're doing is we're exalting ourselves with temporary coverings when it says that God, in verse 21, said God made clothing from animal skins. So even in our own pain, even in the, in the midst of their worst mistake they've ever made in their life, they actually cut off their relationship with God. He never stopped loving them. He said, okay, don't try to prop yourselves up with these fig leaves let me go ahead, but now we have to go on a journey of healing. It's going to take some time, but let me cover you in my unconditional sacrificial love so that we can do this together. He didn't reject him. He didn't leave him by the side. 
So even in our own pain, he's faithful to cover us up in his love. He loves us no matter what. That was promise number two. Promise number three, you're called and you're capable. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by God. Everybody has been called to do something. The problem with living life with our eternal life secure, but our life on earth in a perpetual state of insecurity is that we don't really feel like we have a purpose. And so if you've been going through life and you don't know what your calling is, you don't feel like you have a purpose, all God is saying is that's just a sign that we have some pain to heal. We have some wounds to heal. We have some issues to work out. Remember, a decade I lived living a certain way. It took two years. Well, then I'd argue that it took 20 more years <laughs> to really work it out. And I'm still working out areas in my heart that need, that need healing. It takes time. So how do we know? I mean, look, the scripture clearly says that, that we've been called by God. Jeremiah confirms it. Before I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb, before, uh, uh, before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you. Now he's talking to Jeremiah here. He was appointed to be a prophet, but you can fill in the blank. What has he appointed you to be? The only way we find out is spending time with him, and he will confirm that. Ephesians 4.4 4 says There's only, there is one body, one spirit, just as you have been called, to one glorious hope in the future, he has given each one of us a special gift, each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Special gift here means a capacity or talent. We've all been given a capacity or talent. The problem is the enemy will have us look at people who have a lot of capacity and a lot of talents, and we'll think, well, I'll never be like them. I'll never be like that. But he's given you a talent and a capacity at your level. We need to find it. Romans 12, 6 says, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. He's not real specific, just certain things. What's the certain thing in your life? And he goes on to talk about that uh, if you have the ability to prophesy, speak out uh, with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is encouraging others, just be encouraging. If your gift is giving, then give generously. If God has given you this, the, leader, the ability for leadership, take that seriously is what he says. And then if you have a gift for just showing kindness to others, just do it and do it gladly. Just be kind. So a calling doesn't mean fame, power, money, influence. You know, church leaders have done a terrible job of encouraging people in the church to be content in what your calling is. We've kind of propped up different things that you have to be on stage. You have to be seen. You have to be starting a ministry. You have to do a conference. <laughs> I mean, seriously? You have to write a book. And if I'm musically inclined, I have to get published or I have to get, get with a label. No, certain things. Let's start with certain things. So I love this because as a staff at Embassy City Church, our staff has the privilege of being able to go over to Gateway to their monthly staff meetings, which they call First Tuesday. And um, there was a pastor there a couple weeks ago, Brady Boyd. He's the senior pastor of New Life Church in Colorado Springs. It's a wonderful, growing church. And um, uh, thousands of members, I don't know what it is, but it doesn't matter. What, what he said that mattered was, Yes, I'm the senior pastor of a wonderful church, but I purpose to be the best children's pastor in my home first. He said, I'm committed to being the best marriage pastor in my home first. I'm dedicated to being the best small group pastor over Team Boyd first. And his whole point was, what does it matter 
if I lead the best church in the country, but my home is in strife and my marriage is, is stressed and my kids don't, don't, don't think I love them because I'm spending so much time at church. What's the point? So everyone here, everyone here is called and capable and it begins with the understanding that we're safe with God in his will and that he loves us no matter what. That's promise number three. Promise number four, the last one. You're responsible for your own choices. Ephesians 5, verse 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. One of the, the best advice I ever got when I first got saved was, if all you ever read is Psalms and Proverbs, you'll be fine. And so I did. Like, I don't know what the date is today, the, I don't know, the 23rd or whatever. So Proverbs 23, Psalms 23, and then add 30. <laughs> <laughs> and I did that for a long time, and I'm thankful because Proverbs helped me a lot. Here's just a couple of scriptures. Proverbs 18, 2. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. And if you don't think that you have a problem airing your own, airing your own opinions, just ask your spouse. <laughs> Sorry, honey. <laughs> I do like to air my own opinions, and it gets me in trouble sometimes. Um, Proverbs 1, verse 7. Fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. If you have a problem being corrected, you're probably acting like a fool. You're not acting wise. God will discipline those he loves. Proverbs 12, 15, fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to others. A fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. Now, I stay calm all the time when I'm insulted. Not really. But I'd like to get there. I'm working on getting there. And when I do lose my temper and when I do act a fool, it used to be that I would blame my wife, I'd blame others. But now, as soon as I feel that in my heart, my first question is, Lord, show me what I don't see. Show me what I don't see. Why am I reacting this way? Even if they're right, why am I acting this way? Why does it have such a, a, a tug on my heart? And so what I love about God's plan of restoring our relationship with him is that he built in free will. It wouldn't be free will. I mean, it wouldn't be love if, it, if there wasn't free will involved, if we didn't have the choice. And so every person on the planet has a choice. Do we believe Jesus is our savior of the world or don't we? That's really what it all boils down to. And so there's 196 countries, 6,500 spoken languages, nearly 7 billion people on earth. And we live in a culture today where the political pundits and the news media spend untold hours and millions and millions of dollars trying to divide 320 million people in the U.S. into various segments. Democrats, Republicans, Gen X, Gen Y, Millennials, rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, 1% versus the rest. Millions of dollars in time trying to divide us when in the end God only sees two groups of people, believers and unbelievers. And that's it. That's it. And so as believers, in order for us to be ready to go out and answer that calling, we have to understand that we're on the same team. We are all on the same team. That's why I love Revive Texas. It's brought 350, close to 350 congregations from all over the Metroplex of every kind of different denomination you can think of. They've put aside all their doctrinal differences and said, we're going to have one thing in common. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we're going to go help people. And that's it. Isn't that how the church should be, period? Not just because of an event? 
My hope and prayer is, is that after the 50 days, that that becomes a lifestyle of Embassy City Church and every other church in the Metroplex. Boy, would this, metro, would this Metroplex be different if we had all 4,500 congregations that are in the DFW area be on one accord? Wouldn't that be something? So what separates a believer from an unbeliever? Well, the, one, the biggest difference is how we approach problems and trials. How do we react? Believers aren't alone in our struggles. We have the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus. We have fellow believers that we can run things by. And whether we choose to use the power of the Holy Spirit is up to us. And so James 1 verse 3 says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. So we have a choice. When trials, when tribulations, when sickness, when, when, when stress, when the, just, just life hits us, we have a choice. Do we let the endurance grow or do we push back and start blaming God, the devil, and other people? Let it grow. We live in a fallen world and bad things will always happen to good people. We won't always have the answers to that, but we can look at Jesus as the ultimate example of someone who was completely rejected. And so we can, we can, we can get faith knowing that he was resurrected from that, he came back from that, and he didn't have to defend himself with words. He defended himself through his actions, through how he loved the world. And, and, and that's really what we're being called to do, is to love. So why is endurance, why is letting your endurance grow so important to God? Well, because endurance builds character. In Romans 5.3, it says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance and, and, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our compass of hope and salvation. Well, we all go through tests and different things in life, but it also takes good decision-making when life gets hard. We have to think clearly. We have, it says, the, the Bible says that in a multitude of counsel, there is safety. We can't just make reactive, knee-jerk reactions to certain things because sometimes it just makes it worse. And so our character actually reveals the condition of our heart. If we weren't able to handle problems and, and, and trials with endurance, then it's a sign that there's a problem with our character. So remember, obedience to God is no guarantee that bad things won't happen to us, but a personal relationship with God and people requires big character. That's why God is so intent on saying you have to endure these because it's through that endurance that your character is strengthened. As your character is strengthened, your trust in me is strengthened, and I'll give you the power to, to love other people the way I've loved you. So I'll end with this. You think about the story of Joseph. Joseph was thrown in a pit by his own family, falsely accused of rape, thrown in jail, and spent years there with little or no hope for deliverance. I mean, you have to think that at some point Joseph thought, this is my life. But everywhere he went, from the pit to Potiphar's house, to the jail, all the way up until he got into the palace. Every step of the way, he never let his relationship with God waver. He was still true to, to, true to his integrity, his character. He was a good steward over the things that he was given. I mean, you look at, you read the story of Joseph, everywhere along the way it says he, he, that God was with him and he, and he was a good steward. He was a good steward over other people's stuff. And so, he didn't use the injustice of his situation to stop the work of God in his life. If you are in a situation right now where you just feel this is not fair, this is not right, 
don't let it stop your relationship with God. Press through, keep going, and I promise you, God will, get, God will help you work it out. And the bottom line is, is like Joseph, we're not to wait for deliverance from our problems or our circumstances to begin working on being like Jesus in every area of our life. Because if we waited for it all to be done, then what's the point of needing him, right? So you're safe with me, you're loved no matter what, you're called and capable, and you're responsible for your own choices. These are four promises that are available to every citizen in the kingdom of God. And so Embassy City Church is a church that's committed to putting away the religious playbook and promoting a personal relationship. Not just with Jesus Christ, although that's where it starts. We're committed to to cultivating and offering places for you to develop personal relationships here so that you can then go out and have relationships wherever it is you go. Our filter is simple. Anyone and everyone is welcome here. Anyone and everyone is welcome here. Why wouldn't, if, if God is inviting you to his table to eat, I don't care what your background is, what your belief is, why wouldn't you say, yes, I'm going to sit down and eat with God? And God's word is preached here mostly by Tim, but lots of different people come through here. And I love that Tim has a heart to do that. Number one, it's not about him. Number two, it's about exposing us to different types of chefs, different types of food, different types of, of teaching, different views, different experiences. We partner with other ministries and churches that are doing things great. Unless God says differently, I doubt you'll ever see a food bank out of Embassy City Church because we got food banks in Irving, food banks in every city in the area that do a fabulous job. Why do we need to add another food bank? Let's just equip volunteers. Let's raise money. Let's go get food and let's partner with those people who are doing it great. We're gonna push content and resources to small groups because it's the small groups like in Ephesians and like in the, in the Church of Acts it's that's where relationship happens. That's where healing takes place. That's where um, fellowship really helps people heal. So we're, gonna, we're dedicated to pushing resources and content, money if needed, to make sure that you're not just going to another Bible study, but you're going to actually meet people that you can talk to so that you don't become a statistic like the young people we heard about in the beginning that I just don't feel comfortable talking about. I have doubts. If you can't come to the church and talk about your doubts, then where can you go? I mean, you can go to a counselor, and that's fine and all, but until you can actually come to someone who can pray with you, who can intercede with you, who can fellowship and break bread and understand what's really going on in your life, it just becomes very difficult for us to navigate life. We want to offer incredible volunteer opportunities for you, not just here. We need your help here, but the, the, the end-all ministry experience is not an usher, a greeter, children's, anywhere in this building. That service, the service in the building helps our weekend services and eventually our midweek services, but that's really where where you grow. You learn how to serve here so that we can go into the world and serve. You can't hide here thinking, oh, I'm just gonna serve here and I'm doing my part. We've done that for too many years. We're not gonna do that at Embassy City Church. So I'll end with this, Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Embassy City Church is a church that is committed to a culture of rest. We want you to feel peace and comfort and safety when you come here. Rest actually equals to be refreshed, to receive, and to give. Rest isn't just for you. Rest is also to give. It also includes a compounding effect, meaning that the more we go to him for healing, the more we go to him for restoration, for forgiveness, the more intense the rest comes. 
So it's not like you just go and spend time in God's presence, you're fresh and you leave, and then you gotta come back again to get refilled. He actually adds more onto it. It's a compounding effect. The piece that's really neat about this word is not only is it a compounding effect for you, but it also says in the Greek that it actually means to stop, restrain, quit, or come to an end. So in rest, there's also a stopping point. If you come to Jesus frequently and spend time in prayer, spend time in the word, listen to sermons, just, just stay close to him, the pain in our hearts begins to come to an end. He's the only one that can heal us. He's the only one. And it's only at that time that we really can believe, as the pain is released, that's the only way that we can truly believe that we're safe in his presence, that he loves us no matter what, that we're actually called and have a purpose, even if it's just your own family for right now, and that ultimately we are responsible for our own decisions. When we stand before him, it says, every tongue will confess, every knee shall bow. We're gonna be one-on-one. I'm not gonna have my kids and my wife and you around me going, well, it was, it was him, it was her. No, it's just me. He said, you're gonna be responsible for all the choices you made and there's gonna be an account for that. And so he loves us so much that he gave us his only begotten son. But aside from us being saved spiritually and having an eternal place in life, his desire is that we're healed and that we're saved relationally and emotionally. Let's bow our heads. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more about Embassy City Church, please visit us at embassycity.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Embassy Irving.